9-11. You can't get much more controversial than that, so let's do it. This is Progressive Spirit. My guest this week is Dwayne Dietz, former aerospace engineer for NASA, and he is a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel, consensus911.org. He says the official story of what happened on 9-11 does not add up, and he looks at the hijackers, particularly the role of Mohammed Atta, an able danger. According to the official story, U.S. intelligence didn't know he was in the country before 9-11. Whereas a major research agency, and that's Able Danger, produced evidence showing that the man called Mohammed Atta was probably in the United States from January 2000 onwards. This evidence was blocked from the FBI on three occasions. Time for Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. Stay with us. Progressive Spirit is produced every week. It couldn't happen without the financial support of my congregation, Southminster Presbyterian Church in Beaverton, Oregon. Southminster's website is www.southmin.org. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon for the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, as well as podcast. Show KBOO some love, won't you? KBOO.fm and click Donate. For the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. This is the second of a four-part series on 9-11, specifically the work of the 9-11 Consensus Panel, an international 23-person panel of 9-11 researchers. The panel was spearheaded by Dr. David Ray Griffin and Elizabeth Woodworth. They published a book on their work entitled 9-11 Unmasked, an International Review Panel Investigation. This book was released on September 11, 2018. This is from the book's cover. 9-11 Unmasked is the result of a six-year investigation by an international review panel which has provided 51 points illustrating the problematic status of all the major claims in the official account of the 9-11 attacks, some of which are obviously false. Most dramatically, the official account of the destruction of the Twin Towers and World Trade Center 7 could not possibly be true unless the laws of physics were suspended that day. But other claims made by the official account, including the claims that the 9-11 planes were taken over by Al-Qaeda hijackers, that one of those hijackers flew his plane into the Pentagon, and that passengers on the planes telephoned people on the ground, are also demonstrably false. The book reports only points about which the panel reached consensus by using the best evidence consensus model employed in medical research. The panel is composed of experts about 9-11 from many disciplines, including physics, chemistry, structural engineering, aeronautical engineering, and jurisprudence. That's from the book's cover. Last week, Elizabeth Woodworth and Dr. Graham McQueen were my guests to discuss the purpose, goal, and work of the panel as well as address a few of the 51 points, including foreknowledge of World Trade Center 7's collapse, eyewitness testimony of explosions prior to the collapse of the World Trade Center towers, military drills that had been moved to September 11th, and evidence for steel recovered from World Trade Center 7. This week, I speak with consensus panel member, Dwayne Dietz. Our conversation will focus on the alleged hijackers, including an analysis of whether or not phone calls could have been made from any of the planes. The strange story of Muhammad Atta, or were there two Muhammad Attas? And, in particular, Able Danger, an 80-person intelligence network that identified an Al-Qaeda cell in the Bronx led by Muhammad Atta back in January 2000. Before I play that interview with Dwayne Dietz, I want to play a portion of an interview with Dr. David Ray Griffin. Last year on Progressive Spirit, I interviewed Dr. Griffin about his book that had just come out at that time entitled Bush and Cheney, How They Ruined America and the World. You know, there's one uh, neocon who knows the truth more than any, and he's still living, and that's Dick Cheney. Um, in fact, a major part of your book really is is about his role uh, in all of this. Do, have you ever met Dick Cheney? Is there any chance that he might have a come to Jesus moment? <laughs> I have not met him, and it would be 
uh, you know, anything's possible, but I'm I'm not going to count on it. You know, and he uh, he and he and uh, Bush are both uh, card carrying Methodists. And I mentioned that because the school where I taught, School of Theology at Claremont, Claremont School of Theology, is um, primarily a Methodist uh, school. There have been a particularly, you know, great embarrassment embarrassment to to us. You know, you are a theologian, and and I uh, have to say how how proud I am as a religious person that uh, that you are the one uh, has that has really put your scholarly efforts toward this. And and I think it's obviously because of your theological training uh, that has allowed you to sift through a lot of the lies of the state uh, that uh, that came coming at us. In fact, I want to read a quote from you. You wrote the big lie. You said the hope behind this book is that journalists, politicians, and other people seeing that the neocon mania for empire has been leading America and the world in general to hell, will realize that concerns about reputation are trivial by comparison, and we may be emboldened to stop the madness by exposing the big lie for what it is. And, and I saw that as a call to not be scared off by the labels of conspiracy theorists or, or all of that kind of stuff, and all of the threats to our reputation or job, but to really embrace the truth as it comes to us. Yeah, I think I'm glad you quoted that statement. I think it's uh, the most important statement in the, in the book to say this is what it's about. But I should say now, uh, you know, for a while uh, there was no doubt about that I was the leader of the the 9/11 Truth movement. But now the leadership has been become so uh, widespread in different fields. So you've got uh, Richard Gage is, is currently, you know, he he has really taken over the the leadership of the 9/11 movement, and uh, and rightly so. But also the uh, the physicists, the uh, uh, chemists like uh, Niels Herrett, There's a lot of expertise in this movement. Uh, believe it or not, I <laughs> there's another book that will be coming out pretty soon, within a year probably that is based on a program that a colleague and I started called Consensus 9-11. And so we got about 20 experts from various fields to see what consensus we could have about which parts of the official story are false. I was motivated to do this because I would hear stories about journalists who who just wish to put down the movement they would quote somebody who is you know not a scientist not a philosopher not you know just a guy who calls himself a member of the 9-11 movement and he makes some really stupid comments and then so the journalists will quote such people and say that's what 9-11 truthers believe so we tried to get a that would say, no, here is what 9-11 uh, skeptics believe. We got to the point where we'd have to get a certain percentage of agreement among our group uh, to say, okay, uh, this is this is consensus. And so uh, that will show uh, further how widespread this movement is and uh, how sound, how sound, the scholarship is. And for those of us in the movement, it's just, you know, it's so ludicrous, the, the official story. And we've proven it time and time again. And the evidence is so strong. And the the, the reputation of uh, dozens, actually hundreds of people, scholars of various fields, have agreement on this. But probably nobody listening to this broadcast has never heard of 9-11 consensus or heard of any of these things uh, to show that the official story is a, a lie. Now, one thing, one of the new things in the, the book is about Cheney. According to the official story, he was in his office, and then he was taken downstairs by the Secret Service, but he didn't really get into the the room down there, there till uh, I think it was 9:58. Well, the fact was that Cheney went down there very early. The mainstream 
press pretty much ignored all the evidence, including one member of the cabinet who said, no, no, Dick Cheney was down there certainly before 9.30 and certainly before the Pentagon was struck. But the, the reason for the lie about this was that uh, that way they could claim that Cheney could not have been responsible for the attack on the uh, Pentagon. Well, in the book, I've, I've uh, summarized uh, new evidence that showed that there were at least three major statements by members of the Secret Service who were there and involved in 9-11 who said that Cheney was into the, the room before 9.30. I mean, this is a this is a blockbuster story potentially for the press to say his story about 9/11 that shows that Cheney lied and the 9/11 Commission lied about where Cheney was. And this has been this has been available for over a year, and you not have a single mainstream report about this. Why do you suppose that is? <laughs> now that's another show in itself. Uh, well, it all goes back to to empire. These are all things to uh, support America's uh, dominance of the world, and therefore of its natural resources. That was an interview broadcast in August 2017 with Dr. David Ray Griffin, who, along with Elizabeth Woodworth, formed the 9-11 Consensus Panel. Now I speak with Dwayne Dietz, a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. Dwayne Dietz is former director for research engineering and aerospace projects at NASA Dryden Flight Research Center, where his work earned him the NASA Exceptional Service Award and inclusion into who's who in science and engineering. Dwayne Dietz served as director on the Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth Board from 2008 to 2009. He spoke on 9-11 Truth subjects on several occasions. The titles of those presentations include The Puzzling World Trade Center 7 Destruction, United 93, A Tale of Two Planes, 9-11 Consensus Panel, and The Pentagon 757. Welcome, Dwayne Dietz, to Progressive Spirit. Yes, thanks for having me here. Well, let's uh, start with Muhammad Atta. Well, who was this guy, or uh, and what was the what's the story about him in regards to 9/11? The 9/11 Commission identified him as the technical leader of the 9/11 hijackers. There's a separate consensus point on Muhammad Atta. Atta actually is what he prefers to have his name pronounced. But as the consensus panel has looked into it, there apparently were two different individuals going by the name of Muhammad Atta. And so it's a little bit unclear with these two kind of personalities on exactly who he was. Able Danger was uh, the code name for a high-level intelligence operation that basically identified Muhammad Atta very early as being in the United States. And that's what makes this an interesting consensus point that we'll go over the more details as we talk on. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about that. What was Able Danger and what was its role in 9-11 according to the official story? According to the official story, the 9-11 Commission didn't even mention Able Danger. So if you want to talk about it as an official story uh, item, there wasn't any. But there's a whole lot of information about the importance of Able Danger if you actually look at the evidence. So maybe I can just start talking about aim, Able Danger as a, it was a code name for a very high level intelligence operation co-founded by Generals Hugh Shelton and Peter Shoemaker, Commanders in Chief of the Defense Department's Special Operations Command. Telling the story about Able Danger takes time, but it is important because his work strongly indicated that the man identified as Muhammad Atta had been in the United States in January-February of 2000, about 18 months before the 9-11 attacks, whereas the official story said he arrived in June 2000, 
Furthermore, the official story claimed that the U.S. intelligence didn't know he was in the country before 9-11. Whereas, an important part of the U.S. intelligence, able danger that is, knew he had been there since January or February of 2000. However, able danger evidence was consistently ignored by government officials. The 9-11 Commission failed to mention the evidence, and the Defense Department's Inspector General covered it up. Louise Free, the former director of FBI, called 9-11 Commission's claim that it was not historically significant, quote, astounding, unquote. So, so was Able Danger released at all to other intelligent agencies? Tell me about the, that itself. Who, who was uh, involved in okay. Able Danger and what, they, what did they discover? Well, Able Danger, very early on, I mean, they started, started operations late in 1999. Uh, within just a few months, they identified an Al-Qaeda uh, cell operating in Brooklyn or in the Bronx, and they also identified... Mohammed Atta as the primary leader of that cell, but they th- and they thought very soon as after finding this information that it would be very wise to share this information with the FBI, and so possibly the uh, the cell could be removed if that's what uh, the right thing was to do, and so at that point when they sought permission to go ahead and start a channel of communication with the FBI, uh, the able danger legal side uh, resisted it very strongly. In fact, they resisted it. Resisting means they said no. They did that three times. So this is three times uh, between January 2000 and September 11, 2001? Yes, it all occurred, let's say, uh, in a very short period of time, about uh, June of 2000. So it's still more than a year before 9-11. The thing that happened is there was immediate, let's say, repercussions of that. I'll explain first that it was very memorable by the team, the leadership team of Able Danger, because they developed these charts showing uh, communi- communication paths between individuals, and they would have a chart on a cell. And so they had one of these charts, and they had a photograph of Muhammad Atta kind of in the center of that chart. And it was memorable enough that one of the team members put that chart up above his desk, kind of on the wall. So it wasn't just kind of hidden in in the uh, nitty-gritty of the information, but it was actually there for them to see that, that individual's face every day. And he was, like you say, in the center of the chart. I mean, he was a, a central player in this cell. Exactly. And that's why they... Uh, Able Danger leadership thought that was the right thing to do is to communicate to the FBI so something could be done about it. And this Able Danger group is is no small group. There are, what, 80, 80 members yeah, of it? 80 individuals. It's just kind of, uh, and they are drawn from different services, like there were people from the Navy, from the Army, uh, with specialties in intelligence gathering. So it was very... Uh, highly qualified to do this kind of work. They gathered the information using uh, open source website information. Uh, So it's not like they're tapping phones or anything like that that we tend to think of now, but they were just using open source information and gathering what information they could that would make sense. So they've gathered information on this cell in uh, in Brooklyn, New York, um, in which... uh, 
Muhammad Atta is in the center of this, and three times the uh, leadership of Able Danger, uh, who's been doing research trying to figure out uh, these these cells, these Al-Qaeda cells um, in the United States, tells the FBI, and the FBI uh, or, or, or is resisting it. Not the FBI is resisting it. The Who's resisting it again? The, uh, let's say, the Special Ops Command, which is the one who uh, basically formed Able danger. So that's in their own line of authority. Okay. The legal side is the one that was resisting it. But of course, we don't know where they were getting their instructions from. It could be anywhere up higher at the Pentagon or even above that. Uh, so I'll just identify one person. Army Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer was the first one to seek uh, to open communications, and he did that based on his superior, the head of the Able Danger, asking him to do it. So basically, I was turned down, and another thing that happened at that time, again, this is, let's say, June of 2000, is that the Army ordered one of the individuals, Major Eric Kleinsmith, to destroy all 2.5 terabytes of Able Danger data. Now, this information is withheld from the public until five years later. But uh, the repercussions were more than just saying, no, you can't contact the FBI. They actually were told to destroy all of their data. Uh, and, and when did you say this was? In, in 2000? Yes, it was in uh, May of 2000. Okay, so the implication here is that uh, Muhammad Atta, I guess, is somehow there's a cover-up here or he's being uh, groomed for something else. Or he's being protected for some reason. Okay. It doesn't, ne doesn't necessarily mean that he actually has a significant role. It means that uh, there's someone protecting him so he is not being taken out. Right. Then what happened? So we go. So what you what you mentioned is that after these uh, photos then come out of the alleged hijackers, Muhammad Adis photo is there, and members of uh, the Able Danger team uh, are saying, "Hey, wait, we know this guy." Exactly. Yeah. So this is immediately following nine eleven. So just in the week after, as everyone is starting to find out pictures of the hijackers. They just reacted very quickly. Uh, again, I'm talking about the leadership team. The people are in the same room where that chart had been on the wall so that it, it was uh, ingrained in their, in their minds. Uh, and actually, the chart got handed off to, uh, well, one of the analytical, the analytical lead, uh, a dual PhD by the name of Eileen Pricer, she took a copy of it, the ADA chart that is, to Republican Congressman Kurt Weldon. And he was important in that he was the vice chair of the Armed Services and also the Homeland Security Committees. Weldon, with two other Republican representatives, Chris Shays and Dan Burton, all three of them went to the White House and showed it to Deputy National Security Advisor Stephen Hadley. And uh, Hadley said that he was going to show it to President Bush. I'll also throw in that there have been, this is after 2000, independent corroboration of the fact that Atta, Atta was in the United States during that time period. So it's not just coming from able danger. Some of the examples are there was an individual by the name of Janelle Bryant, who worked for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and she said that sometime between the end of April and the middle of May 2000, Atta came into her office asking for a loan to buy a small airplane, which she did refuse. And there are two other Atta sightings, one in, uh, by people in the Portland, Maine Public Library said that he was in there using their computers, and also he was issued a parking ticket in Brooklyn, uh, and this was in the spring of 2000. So that's uh, independent evidence that Able Danger actually had valid 
information. Uh, That's how you got the pronunciation of his name, right? Didn't um, the person, he had asked for the loan, he told her how to pronounce his name as an attaboy or something like that? Yeah, that's right. That's, that's, he says, uh, it's kind of like attaboy. Remember attaboy. I'm speaking with Dwayne Dietz. He is the former director for research engineering and aerospace projects at NASA Dryden Flight Research Center. He's also a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel, a book coming out in uh, the early part of September. Should be out, in fact, by now. 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation by Elizabeth Woodworth and David Ray Griffin looking at the uh, evidence. uh, that in which this panel has consensus regarding uh, official stories and and uh, of what happened on 9/11 and the point we're looking at today is the point of Muhammad Atta who was uh, believed to be a, a tactical leader uh, one who uh, allegedly uh, hijacked uh, Flight 11 that went into the World Trade Center. The story here is we're talking about Able Danger, an intelligence group that had um, identified him in one of the cells. And the story so far is that he has uh, that they tried to uh, present that to the FBI, but the lawyers for Able Danger itself said no three different times. And so and there's independent evidence, as we've talked about, of, of Muhammad Atta being around before uh, 2001. In fact, in, in 2000. So, so when do we next hear about uh, Muhammad Adda? It's at the 9-11 uh, Commission report, right? Well, well, it's in the efforts by the team leaders from Able Danger. Uh, they made a couple of efforts to brief the 9-11 Commission staff. Uh, one was in October 2003, where Colonel Schaefer uh, was in Afghanistan at the same time that the Executive Secretary Philip Zelico of the 9-11 Commission was also in Afghanistan. So he arranged to brief him and briefed him for about an hour. That took place. Now, five months later from that briefing, Schaefer had his security clearance withdrawn. Okay, I don't know whether those two are connected to each other, but possibly they were. Then there was a second briefing by... uh, the able danger head, and his name is Captain Philpont, and he briefed the 9-11 Commission staff in April of 2004, which happened to be the same month that they put out their official report. Well, the final report came out from the 9-11 Commission, and it was totally silent on able danger. Nothing there. Nothing at all. Didn't even mention that uh, it had existed. They didn't mention able danger. They they mentioned things about Muhammad Atta. They said that he was in the United States starting. It was it was June or two thousand later on. I guess what I want to say is that the response of these of the two co-chairs of the 9/11 Commission. Now they did this uh, maybe uh, August two thousand five. So that was about a year later year plus later, uh, they were asked about why they did not cover able danger. And their answer was, and here's where they said, quote, it's not historically significant, unquote. They also said, quote, they never were told that Mr. Atta and the other threats were identified. So basically they're saying they were never told at heard the leaders of Able Danger had made this uh, two efforts to tell the 9-11 Commission. And when it's all said and done, the Commission said, well, we were never told. So they actually told them, and then the Commission said they never told them. And and uh, and you mentioned that security clearance of, of uh, one of the leaders was taken yes. away. What, what else happened to some of these people on Able Danger who are reporting about this? Well, that gets into kind of the next part when it... It basically is getting more and more attention in Congress. At first on the House side, and then it gets into Senate uh, committee hearings. And at the time that started happening, some things became public knowledge. And the Pentagon came down hard on able danger. They interviewed all 80 individuals associated with it. And then they turned it over to their inspector general to have an independent, they called it an independent, review of able danger. And uh, 
the IG basically covered the whole thing up. Covered it up by saying that these individuals that were leading Able Danger, they were saying that they were unreliable, couldn't be trusted, these kinds of things. And the other thing is that the, the Pentagon never provided any written documentation of what Able Danger had come up with. So it ended up just being the Able Danger leaders, their word against the Pentagon that basically acted as if Able Danger had nothing to do with 9-11. And that's where the crux of the issue became. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schock. My guest is Dwayne Dietz. He is a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. The book we are discussing is 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation. Much more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to the podcast version of Progressive Spirit. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Podomatic, TuneIn, or whatever podcast app you use to listen and give Progressive Spirit five stars, won't you? Contact me through ProgressiveSpirit.net with your thoughts and ideas about the show, and be sure to share this podcast on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Twitter. The website, again, is ProgressiveSpirit.net. This is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. My guest is Dwayne Dietz, former director for research engineering and aerospace projects at NASA Dryden Flight Research Center. We're discussing the work of the 9-11 Consensus Panel and their book, 9-11 Unmasked, an international review panel investigation. So have these folks from Able Danger uh, talked recently or or, or said more to other sources or were they silenced or what happened? The consensus panel really didn't look into that question later on. They kind of wrapped it up at this point that that the inspector general's report that came out in 2006, I believe, just kind of uh, ruined their reputations of these individuals. And I might say that the final report uh, in David Ray Griffin's book that he put out called The New Pearl Harbor Revisited, and it has the subtitle 9-11, the cover-up, and the expose. The book goes into a detailed analysis of the inspector general's inspection, you call it that way, showing that its lack of transcripts, its circular reasoning, and prejudicial treatment of witnesses basically indicated that the Pentagon, through its so-called independent review, actually wanted to put Able Danger to bed so that it had no significant role and, and basically ruined the reputations of these individuals. Well, he threw them all under the bus, so to speak. <laughs> exactly. What about the chart itself? I mean, does that exist somewhere? Well, the actual chart that was on the wall, uh, it was there for a number of years, and it had been taped. It had been moved from one wall to another as the uh, individuals were moved around, and it ended up being so raggedy and with tape all over it that it finally just got tossed in the trash so there wasn't a, a major effort to retain it I, it's not clear to me whether individuals actually still had a copy in their computer records computer files the argument of the pentagon was that it never existed and these individuals just made the whole thing up or they misremembered whatever words that they wanted to use on it. In the, in the Consensus 9-11 website, there is an image of the Al-Qaeda network snapshots of these yeah, cells. That, what is that, that image? That, that was a representative image. It's not the one 
that actually had Muhammad Ad on it. So they weren't able to show the actual one from the information we were able to obtain. I'm speaking with Dwayne Dietz. Uh, he is a member of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. Uh, the uh, topic that we're looking at is one of the points regarding uh, Able Danger and Muhammad uh, Atta and uh, the uh, events in regarding to, to 9-11. So give me, give me a, a, a summary right now of what we've said so far, if you don't mind, and then we'll, we'll, we'll uh, pick up from here. Okay. Actually, what I'd like to do is actually read it from the... the Consensus 9-11 website, because I think it's so succinct. All right. Basically, it says the official 9-11 account is discredited by the evidence below. One, the 9-11 Commission report described Mohammed Atta as the, quote, technical leader of the 9-11 plot, unquote. Number two, according to the official story, Mohammed Atta entered the U.S. in June of 2000. But in fact, he had come months earlier uh, in the January to February 2000 time period. Three, according to the official story, U.S. intelligence didn't know he was in the country before 9-11, whereas a major research agency, and that's Able Danger, co-founded by two commanders-in-chief of the Defense Department Special Operations Command with the acronym SOCOM, produced evidence showing that the man called Mohammed Atta was probably in the United States from January 2000 onwards. Four, this evidence was blocked from the FBI on three occasions. Five, the commission was notified of the Atta evidence in October 2003 and July 2004, yet failed to include the evidence in its July 2004 report, and later described it as having no historical significance. The five witnesses to the evidence were later claimed to have been unreliable or deficient in memory. Seven, the official story may imply not just incompetence, but deliberate cover-up with serious implications. Given this evidence at best, the 9-11 official account is discredited and the public is apparently faced with lies and cover-up. At worst, the man called Mohammed Atta was protected by elements within the Pentagon and allowed to act and travel freely until 9-11. Spell out, if you wouldn't mind, the, the implication of this. Well, the implication, I mean, it's pretty clear that he was being protect, protected for some reason. The different, well, departments, however you want to call it, agencies, were purposefully not communicating for a military agency to purposely not communicate with the FBI, which would be the logical thing if you wanted to remove that cell, which seems to be what you would want to do, apparently the Pentagon or higher up had different plans for what they wanted done. The consensus panel didn't figure out what that might be, but I guess... I certainly have the idea that it's possible that Muhammad Atta was being protected in order to be maybe a patsy. Maybe something else actually was going to come down, but the people in charge of the whole event wanted to have someone to point to as the person who was at fault and carried the whole thing out. That's just the way I would look at it. I'm speaking with Dwayne Dietz of the 9-11 Consensus Panel. We're talking about uh, one of the points of the 9-11 Consensus Panel in their book uh, that has just uh, come out on September 11th called uh, 9-11 Unmasked, an International Review Panel Investigation. Uh, the panel here is about Mohammed Atta and the uh, able danger uh, intelligence work. And Congressman uh, Weldon really pursued this. Can you tell me more about his role? Well, yes. Not only did he bring it to the attention of the White House immediately after 9-11. Uh, he really pushed within the House uh, and his committees that he was the vice chair on to uh, really get to the bottom of it. But one interesting uh, conversation between his deputy, uh, basically his chief of staff, uh, had a conversation with 
uh, deputy executive secretary of the 9-11 Commission, uh, whose name, well, first of all, Weldon's chief of staff was talking to a person named Kojim, K-O-J-M, and he was he was really pressing him on why the 9-11 Commission did not include able danger in their report, and the answer he got is, quote, it did not fit with the story we wanted to tell. What a strange Unquote. answer, isn't it? The it sto- sure did. I mean, that just uh, sounds like the story we wanted to tell, as opposed to the facts we want to uncover. I don't know what that means. Exactly, yes. And uh, I'll just add, I'm not sure whether we have it as a 9-11, as a consensus panel point or not, but it pertains to the executive secretary of the 9-11 Commission, Philip Zellico. The word came out, was it was determined later by a author from New York Times. I don't recall his name right now. He wrote a book. But he found that Zellico had secretly written an entire detailed outline of the report uh, before they even made their first investigation. So the story that they wanted to tell was determined in advance. And uh, Zellico was the person that uh, made that happen. And it was even hidden from the staff of the 9-11 Commission. So it was it was basically held secret from the staff itself. The 9-11 Consensus Panel has another point about Muhammad Atta, and that is that there are two Muhammad Attas. How does that happen? There is a consensus point about there being two Muhammad Attas. In one case, the behaviors of Muhammad Atta is not anything at all like a devout Muslim. He was uh, paying for lap dances and uh, all kinds of alcohol and stuff like that the night before 9-11. But there's also this other Muhammad Atta that his uh, he's physically uh, quite a bit different size, so it'd be hard to mistake the two. And he was so devout that he wouldn't even shake a woman's hand. And so they're so different that there's it's just impossible to mistake one for the other. And so it's like they were doing, <clears throat> maybe these two were doing, uh, carrying out different activities where they would be spotted by members of the press that would end up being the story on them. And so if you think of them, I again, I, I've mentioned it before, think of them as patsies. Uh, it's possible that there was actually two different patsies that were designated as Muhammad Atta, and uh, it ends up just confusing the whole thing about who he was and his characteristics. Yeah, and then there was another consensus point on uh, whether or not Muhammad Atta uh, drove to Portland, Maine, and then took the flight back to Boston, and uh, leaving his suitcase or something with his uh, with his will in it. Uh, for all of the hijackers, including this case, there are no there are no airport security uh, photos or videos that actually show any of the hijackers. That includes that Portland thing, but there, there there's a separate consensus point on the uh, attempt to find a security video of the hijackers at Dulles Airport, and that would be for the flight that that was American 77, there was a contractor hired to look at all footage of all, I don't know what the number is, of security cameras, cameras at that airport, and they could not find a single time where there was an image of a hijacker. So basically that whole thing uh, basically didn't happen. 
Dwayne Dietz is my guest on Progressive Spirit. Um, we're talking about the 9-11 Consensus Panel, the book that has uh, come out on September 11th, 9-11 Unmasked, an International Review Panel Investigation. Uh, consensus911.org is the uh, is the website. So wrapping this up about Muhammad Atta, um, what would the Consensus Panel ultimately say about this person's involvement in 9-11? They basically would say that the official story about Muhammad Atta cannot stand up to uh, a very large amount of evidence. The evidence in terms of newspaper articles that have been published, in some cases it would be books that have been published by people that should be in a position to know. The Muhammad Muhammad Atta's story uh, basically cannot be what the official story says. And that's about as, as much as I could say. One of the ways that the official sources promoted a narrative that there were hijackers in the first place had to do with alleged phone calls from the airplanes, either by cell phone or onboard phone. What did the consensus panel determine regarding evidence for alleged phone calls from the hijacked planes? Well, the main point is that it was determined through several means that the cell phones at that time period of 2001 were not designed to be able to communicate from airplane flying uh, higher than 5,000 feet and be able to connect between the different cell phone towers. So the, the whole idea of having cell phones being the means of communication between passengers on those flights with calling their loved ones back home basically cannot be substantiated because of technical reasons. And that means that that didn't happen. Either the airplanes were actually on the ground, so it was not an issue of cell phone connection, or... We don't know what happened, but the official story that they all these communications took place uh, couldn't have happened. And uh, we know that for sure because when there was one case that actually went to trial about 9-11, the Masawi trial, who was basically the uh, supposedly the 20th hijacker, it was the FBI's time to talk about the phone call, the cell phone calls, and they presented the information basically in court in a very obscure way. They would have a chart that indicated the call, who made the call. The one particular one was Barbara Olson because that was such a critical call because uh, that was the only way they that we knew there were hijackers on board airplanes and that they used box cutters. So if that call didn't really take place and that whole uh, story falls apart, well, what uh, what the FBI did is they had a table that said the phone call that Barbara Olson made did not connect, or basically the, used other things like the connection. The length of the call was zero seconds, and you don't know that's what they came up with or what they presented unless you detail to a detailed study of the charts. Like you said, the phone calls were very important. The Barbara Olson one was about the uh, how the hijackers and the box cutters. And then the 93, uh, U.S. Flight 93, uh, that's a, allegedly crashed in Pennsylvania, uh, had the, the whole let's roll kind of thing. Tell Talk about that phone call. Yes, well, that that particular phone call, the husband was on the airplane, and he's... Uh, I think he was a pilot or a military person that had that kind of experience. He called his wife back home, and she verified it. It was him calling because her uh, phone identity had his phone number show up or his name actually in the phone. So she confirmed that it was him calling, and he, on the call, said basically that they were going to uh, – the term they used was let's roll because the passengers were going to take over the hijackers. And so that's a story that was told, but it 
we basically determined it couldn't have happened. And in fact, the story didn't actually develop until a number of days after 9-11. It kind of slowly started to show up in the media. So it's almost like someone created the story after a, a period of time in order to get something to, let's say, stir up the public. And the, But the best evidence on any of these phone calls, uh, that they couldn't have come from cell phones and they couldn't have come from onboard plane phones either. In the case of the uh, Flight 77, that was the one uh, impacting the Pentagon, uh, we have letters from American Airlines stating that, that that model airplane at that time period did not have satellite phones, is what they call them, installed. So, so that's the evidence that says it couldn't have been by satellite phone. And I already told you the reason why it couldn't be by cell phone. Dwayne Dietz has been my guest on uh, Progressive Spirit. He is uh, the former director for research and engineering aerospace projects at NASA. He was uh, involved in the 9-11 consensus panel that has uh, released a book called 9-11 Unmasked, International Review Panel Investigation uh, by Elizabeth Woodworth and David Ray Griffin. panel's website is consensus911.org. Uh, th thank you for this information. Thank you for being with me today. Very much. I enjoyed talking to you. Next week, my series on the 9-11 Consensus Panel continues. I speak with David Chandler about the physics behind the collapses of World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7. Does the official narrative stand up to the scientific evidence? Progressive Spirit is heard every week. On Progressive Spirit, you hear interviews with cutting-edge scholars, authors, and activists who have something to say about social justice, human flourishing, and things that matter. Progressive Spirit is formatted for radio and is distributed every week through the Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks to the following stations for carrying Progressive Spirit every week. WETS Johnson City, Tennessee. WEHC Emory, Virginia. WPVM Asheville, North Carolina. Kutztown University Radio, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. KCEI, Taos, New Mexico. KACR, Alameda, California. WDRT, Viroqua, Wisconsin. KSOW, Cottage Grove, Oregon. KYAQ, Newport, Oregon. KBOG, Bandon, Oregon. KZ88, Kabul, Missouri. 3A Oldies, 91.9 in Epsom, New Hampshire. KFOI, Redding and Red Bluff, California. WEJP, Wheeling, West Virginia. KPFT, Houston, Texas. And welcoming WRWK, The Work FM, in Richmond, Virginia. You can download Progressive Spirit for free on your favorite podcast app. The website is ProgressiveSpirit.net. Follow also on Facebook and Twitter. Progressive Spirit is produced in the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. I'm John Shuck. Be well.